Okay, I want to start today out. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we started a series last week on Jesus. Uh, we covered the birth of Christ last week. We're going to get into the life of Christ today, the death of Christ the next week, and so on. We're going to carry this into the new year, probably about a month. Uh, I'll start out with an apology. Last week I announced uh, the birth of Christ as the story of Easter. Uh, in case you don't know, that's quite wrong. It's actually the story of Christmas. I had no idea I said that, but several people have confirmed I did, so just uh, sorry about that. Um, if you weren't here, don't worry about it. Uh, there you go. Okay. Today we will look at the life of Jesus, and I want you to kind of know on the front end that we have a huge task in front of us to boil down the most important life that's ever been lived uh, into a, you know, a, a teaching, into one teaching just under an hour. And so we've we got a lot to cover. We're going to move very fast today, just like we did last week. Uh, we're going to be flipping to a lot of scriptures. I put a lot of the references on that handout for you. That way you could go back and look at these later. And that's going to really help you. Uh, in fact, that's, that's, that's what the Word of God calls noble, called being a Berean, uh, studying, the thing, studying the scriptures daily to see if the things that I'm saying are actually true. Um, and so that's where we're headed. We're about to study the life of Christ together. And before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. And I'd invite you to pray with me. Father, we come to you, Lord, and I just confess, God, uh, to you that I believe, Lord, that your word is powerful. God, I believe that it's living and active. Lord, I believe that you spoke it and that you speak it. Lord, I believe that it's hot breath from your mouth. I believe that all scripture is God-breathed and, and profitable. And Lord, I believe that you can speak to us in the next few minutes. And Lord, I, can, I believe that you can speak to us in such a way that brings profit, that makes a difference in our life, Lord. So we ask you, Lord, God, I ask you for help. I ask you for help by the Holy Spirit, that you would help me to teach your word in the strength that you supply in Holy Spirit power. Lord, I pray that you would help me to teach it with clarity, God, and accurately, Lord. With the proper affections, God, I pray that you would help me. And God, I pray that you would help this church. I pray that you would help us to hear your word. God, I pray that you would help us to hear with a discerning ear. God, with an eager ear, God. I pray that you would help us to hear you and your word taught with an ear that's ready to obey. Ready to respond to what you have spoken. God, we pray that you would come meet with us today. And we pray that we would gather together for edification. We pray this in Jesus' powerful, strong name. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. If you weren't here last week, I taught about the birth of Christ out of Luke chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to be flipping all over the Bible today, but if you'll kind of think of Luke 2 through 4 as your home base, we'll kind of come back there each time. Uh, you may not be able to grab every reference that I spit out, but I, I'm pretty sure I gave you most of them on that handout. But Luke chapter 2... Through Luke chapter 4 will be our home base today, so just kind of know that that's coming. Just follow along as best as you can. I want to start us out as we begin, the life of Jesus Christ. I want to start out with this question, and, the, and, you, and you ponder this, okay, for, for just a moment. Why did Jesus come to us in the form of a newborn? Why did Jesus come to us in the form of a newborn? I want you to think about that. I ask it in a few different ways. Get your mind rolling, okay? God could have certainly created Jesus as a full-grown man. We know that because He did it to Adam. 
He could have created Jesus out of nothing. And we could have seen Jesus and He could have appeared on the earth as a full-grown man. Why did He come to us as a newborn? Okay? Moreover, Jesus lived about 33 years on this earth during the early days of the Roman Empire. Okay? Why? Why did Jesus not parachute down the night before He began His ministry as a full-grown man and then begin His ministry and then die on the cross and make atonement for our sins and and ascend to heaven, why did that not happen? Okay? Let me just ask you this. Why didn't He just come down the night before He died on the cross to make the, the sacrifice for our sins? The night before, why did He just not come down, make the sacrifice, and, and go back up to heaven? Why do we have this account of the life of Jesus? Okay, I want you to start thinking about that. Okay? Why do we have this account of the life of Jesus? The climax of Jesus' life, the cap of it, is the, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And you see this in the Gospels. Almost every, every single one. He lives 33 years, but this, this crazy proportion of the content of the Gospels is given to the last week of His life. Uh, crazy disproportion of, of how much the Scripture is leaned in. And the climax of Jesus' life is His death and His resurrection. The apostles made no apologies about preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay? And so we can say without a doubt that the gospel of the New Testament is a cross-centered message. It centers around what happened uh, when Jesus gave His life on the cross for our sins. Okay? However, as we rightly lift up the cross of Jesus, okay, let us be careful that we never downplay the life of Christ. Okay, why did He come and live 33 years on this earth? Why? Okay, Jesus was born to die. You've heard that said. Maybe you've heard it said many times over the holiday season. And what, what's, what's being gotten at in that phrase is that He came to do something. We don't just have a cute baby Jesus story. He came to, to give His life as a ransom for many. Okay, so Jesus was born to die, but I, what I hope you will see today as we walk through the life of Jesus is that He was also born to live. Okay? Jesus Christ was born to live a perfect life before God. Okay? And we're going to dive into this together. So we need, as, as we think about the gospel and gospel-centered, we need to be very careful that we don't have this mindset that, that negates and discounts the perfect life of Jesus. We need to honor what God has done. Okay? He came as a baby. He grew up as a child. He lived a perfect life before God. Okay? And we're going to dig into this today. And our main focus is going to be on the sinlessness of Christ. As we look at His life, that's our main focus. Jesus was sinless. From the cradle to the cross, He never sinned. That's the, te the teaching of the Word of God. And we're going to dig into this today. In John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, you get this really... Jesus wore this to His crucifixion, okay? And you get this description of this tunic that Jesus wore. And John, is, he gives us these phrases. He says the tunic that Jesus wore was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, isn't that a strange thing? Like if you're writing a gospel just to throw those adjectives in there. Isn't that a strange thing? Okay? And what I want to submit to you is that this is a picture of the perfect life of Jesus Christ accrued from day one all the way to when He gave His life for sinners. This is the perfect garment that He accrued with His entire life. Okay? Seamless. Woven from one piece from top to bottom. 
the seamless tunic symbol, it, it'll serve as a helpful way for you to think about. As we, as we walk through this, you're going to see different snapshots of Jesus along the way. And what's happening is this perfect garment. He's weaving it with his whole life. Okay? And we'll talk about that more later. So John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, the seamless garment of Jesus. Now we're going to dig into the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ, and we're going to pick off exactly where we left off last week. Last week, we stopped at Luke chapter 2, verse 20. And what's happening there is that the shepherds had just seen this infant in the manger, and the, and the angels announced this little baby as the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they see him, and they go back to Bethlehem, and they see him, and they leave, and they're rejoicing. Okay? And then you get this description in the very next set of verses in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 20, 21 through 24, immediately following the account of the birth of Jesus. It says this, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Okay, What I want us to see is that if you're reading that gospel, you go from the birth of Christ directly into this story. Okay? And Luke, the writer of Luke, okay, the, the, the author of the gospel of Luke, is going out of his way to show you something. Okay? Jesus is not even eight days old yet, and he is showing you that Jesus was, was, in, was in perfect obedience to the law of Moses, and he, he was a newborn. Okay? And you see that. Listen to this. The accounts in Luke 2, 21 through 24, are direct obedience to the Word of God. They, this, this is direct obedience to Leviticus chapter 12. Write that down and you can look at that later. I mean, step by step. Eight days old, he's got to be circumcised. Forty-one days old, a sacrifice has got to be given to the mother. And you have both of those covered there. And since Jesus is a firstborn, there's even more law that Moses covers. In Exodus 13, there's a law of the firstborn that taught that the firstborn was God's. And he had to be presented in the temple of God. And he had to be consecrated to the Lord. And you see that here. Okay? And Jesus is a newborn. And you see this strict adherence to the law of God. Now this is nothing other than what's taught in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. It says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's the birth of Christ. The next point, born under the law. Okay, Jesus Christ was born under the law of Moses. And you need to know this as we're looking at his sinless life, that he obeyed every ounce of the law of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus himself said his mission, he came to fulfill the law. Okay, That's Matthew 5, 17. Jesus was born under the law and he came to fulfill it. Okay, so almost immediately after Luke records this birth, we have this doctrine and this idea that Jesus Christ is born under the law okay, to fulfill the law. That's very important as you're looking at the life of Christ. Okay, okay if you're coming through Luke 2, you'll see the same idea. There's a story in the temple, and then in verse 39, it's the same idea again. Luke 2, 39. 
says this, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town, Nazareth. He just hits it again. They performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Okay, so he was born under the law of God. Now, if you're reading Luke and you're making notes about the life of Jesus, you got to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and you have a 41-day-old Christ in the temple. Okay, and then something really kind of strange happens. You got 41 days old and the narrative drops off. Okay, and for almost 30 years, we have fragments and tidbits of what has happened to the most important person that has ever lived. Okay, and we know very little about the life of Jesus from day 41 to, to, to when he was age 30. And then it picks back up in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, reads like this. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Okay, and so you have this story of this, of this infant. And he's presented in the temple and you get another little snippet when he was 12 years old. But you virtually have very little from newborn to age 30. And that may seem strange to you. Okay, We do not know a lot about this time period. But one thing I want to submit to you that the word of God says this. That we know that for 30 years, we might not have known exactly what Jesus was doing. But we know that for those 30 years, Jesus was without sin. Okay? He was accruing a perfect record of obedience before God the Father, born under the law to fulfill the law of God. Okay? And we get some fragments, like I said, like in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 and 56, we, we get some details about his life. Let's read that. Matthew 13, 55 and 56 says this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Okay. So we get some, we get some information about the, the life of Jesus. And we know this about this 30 year period. We know that Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth. This was a small country town in northern Israel. We know that's where he was. We know that he had a family with a mother named Mary and an adopted father named Joseph. We know that about Jesus. Jesus was the oldest of his siblings. He was the firstborn. But we also know that he had four brothers. And we know that he had at least three sisters. The word all implies at least three, if not more. So Jesus had a mom and a dad. And he lived in a town. And he had four brothers and at least three sisters. Okay? We know that Jesus had a job. He worked as a carpenter. Now, all these things should be very normal things to you. And that's exactly the point. Okay, These should seem like very normal things to you because Jesus really lived a real life. Okay, But something very abnormal is going on behind the scenes in that, that whole time. He's got a real family. He lives in a real city. He's got real parents. He's got a job, but he's got no sin. Okay, He has no sin. Consider the following. One of the first places that sin begins to manifest itself in a young child is within the family. I mean, you're there, you're with your parents, okay? And it even magnifies the problem when you have siblings, okay? This is where it starts to happen, when it starts manifesting himself. Jesus had four brothers. He had three sisters. They were a poor family. They lived in close quarters. And we have no record 
of him ever quarreling with any of his siblings. So consider these things. He lived a real life. He didn't sin as a young child. He didn't sin as an adolescent. He was perfect under the law of God. Okay? Consider also that Jesus had a job. Let's say on average we spend 40 to 50 hours a week at our job. And that's an average. Some of you more, some of you less. Okay? I'm just saying 40 to 45 hours, somewhere around there. That's a lot of time that you spend in one place. Okay? Think about this. It's, that, that time was no different in first century culture. Okay? Now, you spend a lot of time at work. This provides many, many opportunities for sin. Okay? Many opportunities. Many hours are spent at your job and many opportunities are provided you to sin. Many temptations. Think about this. Whether we're tempted with these temptations, whether it's being lazy at work, conforming to the world at work, losing your temper at your job, not being honest at your job, not working as unto the Lord at your job. Okay? So we have all these temptations that we can have in our job, and we know that Jesus had one, and we know he never sinned. Okay? Now, we don't know how many hours that he was in the carpenter shop, but we know it was many hours. And you can just picture him. We don't know exactly what he was doing every day there. Okay? But we know that he got up, and every single work that he worked is unto the Lord for the glory of God. Okay? Jesus has, this should be a great encouragement to you. Jesus has proven forever that all of life, every single moment can be lived unto the glory of God. Every single day at work, Every single day you get up, he lived a real life to the glory of God, and he was without sin. Okay? Also consider this. In Matthew's Gospel, the verses we just read, Jesus is called the Son of the Carpenter. Okay? But in Mark's Gospel, the same verse, Mark 6, verse 3, Jesus is called the Carpenter. Matthew's Gospel calls him the Son of the Carpenter. Mark's gospel calls him the carpenter. What's going on there? Okay, consider this. Jesus would have learned this trade as a carpenter from his adopted father, Joseph. Okay? Alright, most likely, there's a lot of consensus on this, most likely, at some point in Jesus' late teenage years and early adult years, Joseph dies. And Jesus becomes, at that point, not the son of the carpenter, but the carpenter. Okay? Now, that's confirmed by the fact that Joseph's name just drops off in the New Testament. He completely disappears from the story. Okay? So something happens to Joseph. Perhaps that happens. Jesus becomes the carpenter. Okay? Now he's the oldest sibling with seven, he, with seven brothers and sisters and a mom, and the burden of provision would have fell on Jesus, okay? And perhaps that happened. And if it did, guess what? We know about Jesus. Jesus would have worked hard to provide for others, okay? He would have labored with all his might for the glory of God. He would have never cut corners. He would have done what he needed to do for his family, but he never would have idolized his work. He never would have idolized his job. His job would have never caused him to slack off in his pursuit of God. He was sinless in his vocation, okay? should be very encouraging to you that he's the carpenter. He's just a common man, worked with his hands, and he never sinned. Okay? 
Hope this gets you thinking about this. Jesus lived a real life. This is my point, okay, and all that. Jesus lived a real life in a real city with a real family, and he never sinned, okay? He didn't live a mythical life and never sinned. He lived a real one. Breathing our air, drinking our drink, eating our food, doing the things that we do, except without sin. The perfect life of Jesus. Luke 3, verse 23, we've already read, says that Jesus, when he was 30 years old, began his ministry. As he began his ministry, and you know this if you've read the Gospels, he called 12 men who would be called his apostles. These men would be the ones to carry on the mission of Jesus after he would die. They basically lived with Christ for about three years. They ate together. They stayed together. They even shared the same bank account. Okay? They were in close quarters for three years. If anybody could have observed sin in the Savior's life, surely they could have in close quarters. Now consider this even more. Jesus had three who were really close to him, Peter, James, and John. Okay? And these were his inner three. Now, if these men knew him better than anybody on the planet. And if anybody could observe sin in Jesus' life, surely it was Peter, James, or John. But listen to the words of Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. says this about the Savior. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What about John? John says in 1 John 3, 5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. Jesus' closest disciples said, No sin in Him. He committed no sin. And then Paul joins them in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, describing Jesus as the one who knew no sin. Okay? Jesus' disciples affirmed that He was sinless. Then think about this. Jesus had a self-exalting ministry. And I'll explain that in just a second. And it created an environment of hostility. And I'll explain that in just a second too. But listen to this. Jesus' ministry was a teaching and preaching ministry. He also did many other things like miracles that would validate the message. But, but He was sent with a mission to get this message out. Okay? Is primarily a teaching and, and preaching ministry. Now, the message that Jesus was getting out is Himself. He was the message. He proclaimed Himself. Okay, and that's what I mean by Jesus' self-exalting ministry. Okay, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is humble. But do not push that analogy too far. Okay, now He, was, he is forever without pride. Okay, but sometimes you can say that Jesus is just as lowly humble and you forget that the Word of God is full of things like this. He constantly talked about Himself. For example, He announced Himself to be Israel's Messiah in John chapter 4, verse 26. He commanded all men everywhere to come to Him and to follow Him. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life and that no one could come to the Father except through Him. That's John 14, verse 6. He announced Himself to be the bread of life. John 6, 48. The light of the world. John 8, 12. The resurrection itself in John eleven twenty five. During His earthly ministry, Jesus opened His mouth and He forgave sin. That's Luke 7, verse 48. And then listen to this. He announced Himself to the world as the one who was coming at the end of time to personally judge every person for what they had done. That's Matthew 16, 27. 
He had a self-exalting ministry. He was pointing people to Himself. Okay? Jesus Himself claimed that He was sinless. John chapter 8 might be a good place to flip. John chapter 8, we got several verses, several references here. Jesus claimed that He was sinless. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said this, I always do the things that please Him. Jesus always, without exception, did the things that please the Father. Okay? That's John 8, 29. That's Jesus talking about Himself. Later, in the same conversation, He looks at His enemies in verse 46. Okay? He just said to them, I always do what pleased Him. And then in verse 46, He says, Which one of you convict me of sin? And He gives them an opportunity right there. Okay? He's claimed to be sinless, and He's given them an opportunity. Which one of you convict me of sin? Okay? In verse 58, later in the same conversation, Jesus claims to be God Himself. And in the very next verse, His enemies try to kill Him. Okay? What I want you to see is that His self-exalting ministry created this hostile environment. And His enemies basically said, Who are you? Okay? But the thing that they couldn't do is they could never pin something to Jesus that would stick. The only thing that they could throw at Him was the charge of blasphemy. Because He claimed to be God. Okay? And we know that this is not a sin for Jesus. Jesus did not commit blasphemy because we know the Word of God teaches that He was, in fact, God. Okay? So they could never bring a charge against Christ that stuck. And they tried for almost three years. They tried His whole life. And then Mark chapter 14, verse 55 and 56 says this about his enemies. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness about him, but their testimony did not agree. So they're trying to nail him but they can't get anything to stick. And so they pass this ridiculous sentence on some trumped up charges. Okay? And they send him out. And they send him out. And then G Judas comes in in Matthew 24, 4. And Judas even flips and declares Jesus to be innocent. This is Matthew 27, 4. Jesus said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Okay? Then think about this. Jesus goes to trial to Pilate and Herod. And then Luke chapter 23, 13 through 15 says this. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Pilate and Herod claimed that Jesus was innocent and sinless. Even the thief on the cross that died beside Jesus declared him to be sinless. In Luke 23:41, he said, This man has done nothing wrong. And the Roman centurion who looked in Jesus' face and watched him die, his next words were this in Luke 23, verse 47. Certainly, this man was innocent. Okay? So I want you to see the testimony of Scripture, his family, his disciples, himself, his enemies, 
Every person from all angles, the Word of God teaches that Jesus Christ was sinless. Okay? Now listen to this. Hebrews 7.26 For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I'll read that one, one more time. It was fitting. God set it up this way. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He lived an absolutely sinless life. You need to be thinking about that seamless garment. Okay, Jesus is without sin. Now, so there's the doctrine, and we're about to turn a corner. Okay, Jesus is sinless life. There's many things. This is not exhaustive. Okay, this is just what we're looking at today. Like I said, this is the most important life. We're we're summarizing this down into one teaching. So Jesus' life, sinless life, means many things. But I want to draw three points or three implications from this doctrine. Number one. His sinless life will qualify Him to die for our sins. Without His sinless life, He would have been disqualified to die for our sins. Number two, His sinless life secures our perfect righteousness before God. Number three, His sinless life will serve as an example to all His disciples who seek to be like Christ. So let's unpack number one. His sinless life will qualify Him to die for our sins. Seventeen times in the book of Leviticus, okay, in some form or fashion, the sacrifice that God demands is described to be the one that's without blemish. Okay? Over and over and over again, bring Him, but make sure He's without blemish. Bring a lamb without blemish. Bring Him without blemish. Bring a ram without blemish. Without blemish, without blemish, 17 times in Leviticus. Okay? Then think about this. Hebrews 10, verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Say, what are you talking about, man? You're just talking about Leviticus. Okay? Hebrews 10, we know from Hebrews 10 that Old Testament sacrifices, they did not take away sin. Okay? They were a shadow that was put in place for a temporary season that pointed to the final perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay? They never took away sin. Only the sacrifice of Christ takes away sin. However, God intends to teach us things with shadows and types. Okay? And so this language in Leviticus, this without blemish, without blemish, without blemish, over and over again in Leviticus, what's supposed to, what are we supposed to take away from that? Okay? The God of the Bible has revealed to us that the sacrifice that will make atonement for our sins is the one that's without blemish. Okay? God has told us this in His Word. Jesus lived a perfect life before God to die as the Lamb of God without blemish. 1 Peter 1.19 says that we were redeemed with the blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay? His life qualified him to lay his, his perfect life qualified him to die for sins. Okay? If Jesus would have sinned, you're still in your sins. Okay? It's necessary for our salvation. It qualified him to be the spotless lamb. The same doctrine is taught in Hebrews 9:14. His sinless life was required to save us. His sinless life would culminate 
and this sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. And we'll get into that next week when we study the death of Christ. But I want you to think about this. The one who committed no sin and always did the things that pleased the Father. That one. The one who always did the things that pleased the Father laid down his life for sinners. Okay? And this is the good news that brings salvation. This is the good news that caused us to explode with praise back to God and joy for what He's done for us in Jesus. He's the Lamb of God without blemish. Second point, His sinless life also secures for us a perfect righteousness before God. This is for every believer. Now, God's law demands perfection. And many of you know this. I'm just going to remind you of it. God's law demands perfection. Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus Himself said this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James 2.10 teaches the same thing. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. God's law demands perfection. Okay? God's law can be summarized with these phrases. To love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And every single person in this room has breached and broken that law. That's the clear testimony of the Word of God. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's Ecclesiastes 7.20. Every single person in this room has broken the, the law of God. And God's law demands perfection. Therefore, the Bible teaches that all mankind has fallen short of God's standard and will be held accountable for their disobedience. And the penalty that the Bible demands for our sin is the wrath of God. Okay? And this is where all mankind stands. But Jesus accrues this perfect life before God and then He does something to make it possible for sinners to be righteous in God's sight. Okay? Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 19. I love this verse. I know I read it all the time, but let's read it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay? And we say that. When Adam sinned, you finished the sentence. We were counted sinners. And for all who believe, when Jesus obeyed, you are counted perfectly obedient in Jesus Christ. You have this status called righteous in God's sight. Okay? We talk about this often. It's also 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And what I want us to see is that that's the great exchange of the Word of God. That, that the Gospel is that our sins can be laid on Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, and His perfect life of obedience can be credited or imputed to us in this Word called righteousness, our justification in the Scriptures. Okay? This is the good news. And this is what's available to all who believe. Okay? And we say this a lot. I'll just put this out there one more time. This is more than a pardon, okay? God does not look at you in Jesus Christ and say, not guilty. He looks at you in Jesus Christ and He says, righteous, okay? 
And what I want you to see is that His death doesn't just take away your sins. His life of perfect obedience actually becomes a garment that you wear. Okay? This is the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness in Isaiah 61.10 that makes people rejoice greatly in the Lord. Okay? This, is, this is the joy of our salvation that we are covered in this perfect, seamless righteousness of Jesus. Think about it like this. His death takes all the curses of the covenant that were supposed to fall on you. You ever read the curses and the blessings in the Old Testament? Okay. His death takes all the curses of the covenant that were fallen on you. And His perfect life of obedience secures every blessing of the covenant on your behalf. Okay. You need the death of Christ and you need the perfect life of Jesus. And His perfect life secures for us a perfect righteousness. Now listen to this. Flip to Ephesians chapter 5. The Lamb of God without blemish transfers this without blemish status to all who believe. Now you've got to listen closely for this one because it's buried in the command from a, uh, to, from a husband towards a wife. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the Word of God, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the believer walks away from trusting in Jesus with the same status that he accrued. He was the Lamb of God without blemish, and we will be presented before the Father without blemish. His life secures this righteousness. Okay. Three points. The last one is this. His life serves as an example to be imitated by all of His disciples. Okay? I'm going to make my third point in our application at the same time. And I want to remember there are hundreds of places that we could go. His life is so rich and so full. Okay, but we're going to do one more point in the application at the same time. Alright, I want to say this. I have rejoiced in Jesus Christ with you so far. Okay? And we're about to turn the corner. Okay? And the last point may have a tendency to sting just a little bit. And I promise you, okay, before the Lord, I promise you that I would not do that to you unless I was trying to help you. Okay? So let's dig into this last point. His life is an example for every disciple to imitate. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Told you that was home base. Just think of one more verse just to get in right before we read Luke 4. Uh, 1 John 2.6 says this, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Everyone who names the name of Jesus ought to walk like Jesus on this earth. Every single person. No exceptions. Okay. We're, we're going to read the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I, am not, I was so tempted to do this. I'm not going to unpack this passage. Okay? I'm not going to preach a separate sermon. I could. I love this passage. But I'm just going to draw a few points out of this. Okay, so there's a lot more to be said about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Okay? We're going to read verse 1 through 13 together. Here we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, 
and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. He And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give... He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the Word of God. Okay. Just brief. There's so much more here than this. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Okay? The words here, and you can see this, Satan actually comes to Jesus and says to him, okay? This is a face-to-face conversation between a man and Satan. The last time that the face-to-face conversation happened between a man and Satan in the Bible is when? The Garden of Eden. Okay? The, the head of lost humanity, Adam, Satan comes to him and he plunges the whole human race into sin. And now we have Christ Jesus, the, the last Adam, the second Adam, uh, the, the second man and the last Adam. And, the, and, you, and, and you're supposed to be thinking about this, okay? This, this whole wilderness story is supposed to make you think about Genesis, where the first head fell, the second one is about to be tested, okay? There's so much more here than this. The first Adam failed and broke the covenant, but the last Adam, Christ Jesus, He conquers and emerges sinless with its conflict with Satan. Verse 13 says that Satan departed after he had ended every temptation. Okay? Satan threw everything he had at Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ conquered. Okay? And this is the teaching from Luke chapter 4. We should model Jesus' entire sinless life. But I, I just want to pull out something from this, from this passage that we should model the way that Jesus defeated temptation. Okay? And this is where we're going. I want to close with an appeal to every person in this room about your daily relationship with the Bible. Okay? Your daily relationship with the Bible. Okay? Three times in Luke chapter 4, verse 13 verses, three times Satan brings a temptation to Jesus. And three times Christ Jesus opens His mouth and He says, It is written. And then He quotes a verse from the Bible. Okay. Now, you can miss this. If you're not paying real close attention, you can miss this. Jesus did that for you. Jesus did that to model something for you. You say, what do you mean? I mean this, that Jesus was every, every footstep He walked on the earth, He was a walking Bible. Every time He opened His mouth, red letters fly out everywhere. Jesus is the Word of God. Okay? 
Jesus has to do none, nothing of what He just did. Okay, So what's going on there? Jesus is doing this for you. Jesus is modeling for you how we defeat temptation. Okay, So I want you to know that. I want you to understand that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 commands you to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? The Bible is called a sword to be taken up. And I promise you, I promise you this, in your Christian life, you will not, will not, will not fight a good fight without swinging that sword. That is your chief weapon. Okay? You will not fight a good fight without swinging that sword. I want you to see this. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. I want you to see some things about the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Okay? I want to demolish just some, maybe some bad mindsets. Maybe you don't have them, maybe you do. In verse 1, Jesus Christ goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. And then, boom, 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 he starts quoting Bible. Okay? Therefore, to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of the Word of God are not opposites. They're not opposites. Okay? I don't know if you've ever bumped into that and walked into that. That is not the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus Christ was full of the Bible and He was full of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit has a sword according to Ephesians chapter 6. Guess what the name of His sword is? The Word of God. Okay? The Bible is the, sword, the Holy Spirit's sword. They're not opposites. Okay? Here's my point. Please stop making super spiritual excuses in your life for why you are neglecting the Word of God every single day. Okay? It is so easy to deceive yourself that you're actually further along in this journey than you actually are. And we can make all kind of spiritual excuses. You know, spiritual activity. Uh, you know, everybody's got a word. Nobody knows the word. This, this type thing is foreign to the Word of God. Stop making silly excuses for why you're not devouring the Word of God every day. Okay? Let that be a reminder to you from Luke chapter 4 and Ephesians 6. Okay. The Holy Spirit, this is a word. Here's a word for you. The Holy Spirit wants you full of the Bible. Okay? And you see that from Jesus' life in verse 1. And then he starts tow, 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 quoting the Word of God. And you see the enemy conquered and defeated. Okay? Satan does not flee from you for yelling loud. Satan does not flee from your presence, from you coming up with something silly just to say. The sword of the Spirit that slashes the enemy is the Word of God. Okay? I want you to see this. In verse 4, Jesus also elevates the Word of God to above physical food. So what do you mean? In verse 4, Jesus said this, Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay? In Matthew's version, Matthew 4.4 4 says, But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus elevates the Word of God above spiritual food and He tells you that you shouldn't be living on bread alone. You need something more than bread to live. You need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, so what do you mean? It's impossible for us to grow without it. The Word of God is your spiritual nourishment. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Draws the parallel to food. This brings you nourishment. If you are depriving yourself of the Bible, you are starving your spiritual life. Okay? I am not trying to condemn you. I am trying to open your eyes. Jesus Himself says this. If you are depriving yourself of the Bible, you are starving your spirit. Okay? This comparison is from Christ, not man. The Bible as daily bread is not legalistic. That is not legalistic. Okay? This is from, this is Matthew 4 chapter, I mean, this is Matthew 4 4. It's not legalistic to read the Bible every day. Okay? It's not legalistic to devour the Word of God like your daily bread. This is from the mouth of Christ Jesus Himself. And this is, he, this is how, what He modeled for us and how to defeat temptation. You have no chance. You have no chance of living a life that pleases the Lord without feeding on this book. You have no chance of doing that. I wish it were easier for you. I wish it were easier for myself. Okay? I just want you to know that you have no chance of pleasing God apart from His Word. Christ Jesus, the walking Bible, modeled this for you. You cannot ignore it. Okay? No chance. Okay. Maybe there are far too many of you in this room that are struggling in this area. And I say this as a brother in Christ with much love in my heart. This has got to stop. This has got to change. And my prayer is that God would change it today. That's my prayer for you. Okay? I do not believe that you have to walk in Christ Jesus in perpetual failure. In fact, I'm convinced from the Word of God that in this church, there's no reason why every single member of this church should not have a victorious relationship in the Bible. There's no reason for that. I believe God can do that. Okay? And I would invite you to cry out to God. Join me in that prayer. God, help us to feed on Your Word. Every single one of us, Lord. Every single one of us. Alright. It doesn't matter. Like I said, this is a deceptive thing. You can think you're further along than you are. It does not matter how spiritual you feel. Okay? It does not matter how many programs and committees or activity, how much activity you're, you're involved in. If you are not in the Word of God every day, you are not growing like you should be. And you are leaving yourself wide open to temptation. Okay? So just know that. Just receive that warning. Remind you again, Jesus Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said that. You need to obey that. Jesus said that. Your relationship with the Bible, your daily relationship with the Bible, touches every area of your life. If you cave here, everything else will follow. It affects what kind of employee you are. It affects what kind of husband you are. It affects what kind of wife you are. It affects what kind of disciple you are. It affects everything. Okay? This is why this is so vital. Lord, put his, He's put a heavy burden on my heart about this for this church. Okay, there is no reason. I know it's a really common thing to struggle in this area. There is no reason why we have to accept that. Okay? God can, God can do this. He can, he, can, he can do this in this church. Alright? I want to just tell you some ways to process through. If this is an issue for you, and, and there are many people in this room that this is not an issue for, okay? And I praise God for that, okay? There, there are also quite a few people in here. I know because I talk to you, okay? I know because I talk to you. I've heard you say it, 
Okay? And I want, I want to talk about some practical things that we can do uh, to work through this. If God has convicted you about this sin, first, please do not run from this conviction. Okay? The worst thing that you can do is ignore it. The Holy Spirit is coming to you. This is your Father in heaven. Every ounce of discipline He places in your life, His end goal is holiness. Okay? There's not, not condemnation for you. There's not punishment. He's trying to conform you into Christ's likeness. Do not disregard it and do not ignore the con- conviction of God. Okay? Ask God to show you the wickedness of a life of indifference to the Word of God. Okay? If you have lived a lifestyle of indifference toward the Bible, ask God to show you the wickedness of that sin. That you would see the sinfulness of it. Okay? That you would be broken, truly broken over it. Ask God to deliver you from lukewarm Christianity that will be spewed out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Okay? Make this a matter of earnest prayer and seek help from the Lord. And I would encourage you to seek help from a mature brother and sister. This is so vital to everything else in your life that it's got, it's got to be there. Okay? Many of you know that Wednesday is New Year's uh, Day. And this is partly why I chose this application. Okay? New Year's Day is Wednesday of this week. All right? If this whole concept of seeking the Lord every day through Bible reading has been an issue for you, then most likely you do not have a plan for what you're doing. Okay? That's been my experience and, 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 and also my experience in talking with people. Maybe you do have a plan and you're just not working your plan, but most people that, ha- that struggle in this area don't have a plan. Okay? New Year's Day is Wednesday. This is a practical thing. I want to encourage you, get a plan. Okay? What's better? A no Bible reading plan or reading no Bible? You say, yeah, I don't like Bible reading plans. Okay? Which one's better? I don't have a plan and I don't read the Bible, or I have a Bible reading plan and I read the Bible. Okay? So you can have all the opinions you want to about Bible reading plans to be the important thing is that you're in the Word of God every single day. If you don't have a plan, I would encourage you to get a plan. I'm going to send out an email to the members of this church sometime today. If you, don't ha- if you do have a plan and it's working, praise God, don't change your plan. If you don't have a plan and it's not working, I'm going to send you an email with some ju- suggested Bible reading plans Today, there will be a couple of different ones you can pick from. If you're not a member of this church, give me your email address. I'll send you the same plan. Just let me know sometime after the, after the service. My point is get a plan. Do not let another year slip by in your life of indifference to the Word of God. Okay? All right, I want to encourage you to think about New Year's as a fresh start in this. Uh, and, and, and I want, I want to say this one more time. I want to anchor this is not, this is not good advice from Dustin. Okay. This is obedience to Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said this, and this is on you to obey us, his disciple. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right. Many of you here are already doing this. And I want to just stir you up and encourage you to, to just press on. Press on to know Jesus more and more. Okay? Press on more and more, more and more, seeking God through the Scriptures every day. And I want to remind, this is the last verse I'm going to read. I want to remind everybody here that our aim is not to read the Bible every day. Our aim is to meet with God. And our aim is not just the duty. Boom, checked it off a list. This is something that we're supposed to love in the presence of King Jesus. So our aim is delight, okay? 
This is Jeremiah 15, 16. Last verse. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. God can do that for every single believer. He can make you love His Word.